Revelation chapter 22, uh, verses 18 and 19. I'll actually read through the end of the book um, in John's epilogue as well. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, yes, John, I'm right there with you. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, thank you for, for, for inspiring this book. Um, Lord Jesus, thank you for promising that you're coming quickly. Um, Lord, thank you for your love and your warnings to caution us that, that your book is not to be taken lightly, uh, that it is your very word, that we are to respect it, we're to reverence it, and we are not to change it. It is to change us, and that is true evidence of saving faith, that we receive your word and obey it. Lord, we love you, and we ask that you would change us by it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. So I titled our sermon... Don't shoot the messenger. Don't shoot the messenger. Anybody ever heard don't shoot the messenger before? All y'all know what it means. Somebody shows up with bad news, and the people they tell get mad at the person who told them, like it's their fault. Well, Revelation's certainly not bad news, is it? Well, not for us, not for the church. And when I say the church, I mean the people of Jesus Christ. I don't mean the, the folks who happen to sit within four walls. I mean, I mean the people who have come to Jesus Christ to be saved. Revelation is the best possible news they could ever hear is that Jesus has not abandoned us. He's not given up on us, that he's coming back not just to redeem uh, our bodies and finish his redemptive work, um, bring it to its desired end, but also to just redeem the entirety of creation and start all over with no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. The problem with that is not everybody's come to Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean Jesus Christ is not coming to them. So for those that reject it, the book of Revelation is really bad news. For those that love Jesus Christ, all who have loved his appearing... Man, I'm telling you what, it's, it's the best news there possibly is. But in that subset of people who do not like the message of the book of Revelation, they tend to want to shoot the messenger, messenger and or change the message. But we get a pretty stern warning against that in verses 18 and 19. I want us to look at three, three truths we can learn from just these two verses this morning to close out our study of the book of Revelation. And first, I want us to see that the Bible is God's word. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not anybody else's. Look in verse 18. John says, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. I testify. Who is the I? Now, it, it, depending on, on com what commentators say, some people say this is Jesus. This is the words of Jesus. Who in here has got a red-letter Bible? Anybody got a Bible with red letters? Did any of your Bibles put these in red letters? I wouldn't be shocked if some, some did and some didn't. But uh, folks can't really tell. Greek doesn't have quotation marks in it. So Greek doesn't necessarily tell you who is, who is speaking at this point. John's, I believe is John. I'll tell you why in a minute. John says, I testify... To everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone 
adds to these things. God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. So God is the source of this book. John is God's messenger in relaying this book to the church. And because God is the source of this book, John rightly refers to it as prophecy. Prophecy is not exclusively predictions of the future. A lot of times when you hear prophecy, that's what you think. Prophecy is not exclusively predictions of the future. Prophecy at its core means nothing more than to speak the words that God has given you accurately to the people, uh, to the person, people, or thing that, that God in, intends to communicate with. Uh, so if one prophecy contains information about the future and another prophecy uh, contains God's opinion of the present, they are both equally prophetic, provided that the prophet says what God thinks about something, right? So God is the source of all prophecy, and he's the guarantor of its fulfillment. Now, commentators disagree on who the speaker in verses 18 and 19 are. Some people think that it's Jesus. Some people think that it's John individually. I think that it's John. And now that I've told you what I believe, let me tell you why it doesn't matter. Right? So how many of you, I just asked this, those of you with red letter Bibles, show me your, show me your, your hands. Okay, so red letter Bibles. The printers of your Bibles believe who is speaking when the letters are in red. Jesus, right? So those of you who have red letter Bibles, look me in the eye and tell me that the words printed in black are less authoritative than the words printed in red. Anybody willing to say that? Anybody at all? I hope not. I hope not, right? Uh, that, that, would be a ridiculous, that would be a ridiculous statement. Uh, Jesus spoke the red-lettered words, but the Holy Spirit inspired the black-lettered words as well. So they carry equal weight and they carry equal value. So what does it matter if Jesus is the one that spoke the words in 18 and 19, does that mean that they're more authoritative than, than words written by John in this book that Jesus didn't speak? Because elsewhere in this book, John transcribed the words of angels, didn't he? So does that mean if, if Jesus spoke these words, they're more authoritative than the words recorded by John, spoken by the angel that God sent to talk to him? No, that doesn't mean that. What if these aren't the words of Jesus or an angel, but they're just a warning given by John to people who are going to read this book afterward? Does that mean they're less authoritative? No, because John's inspired by the Holy Spirit, which means this warning is inspired by the Holy Spirit. These are all ridiculous questions as to, as to who said it, but this, this matters. They're ridiculous questions because the truth is that, 2 Timothy 3.16 all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. And also, 2 Peter 1.21, prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Spirit. One thing that we believe as a church, and we will ride or die on it, is that this is not the composition of mere mortals. This book is not just what some smart guys sat down one day and decided might be helpful to write down. It is the actual word of God. That John may be the one writing, but the words of the book have their source in God. So to be at odds with them is not to be at odds with John, is it? 
If you got a problem with the words in this book, you're not at odds with John, you're at odds with God. And so if anybody changes this book because he doesn't like what it says or what it doesn't say, John's not going to be the one to judge that person. God is. It's not John that you've got to answer to for changing the Bible. This warning, yes, it applies to the book of Revelation, not to add to it or not to take away from it. But Revelation is part of a larger revelation of God, is it not? It's part of the entirety of Scripture. And this is not the first time the Holy Spirit has inspired a warning like this. In Deuteronomy 4.2, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you. In Proverbs chapter 30, verses 5 and 6, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he what? Rebuke you, and you be found a liar. To tamper with the word of God and present it as what he has spoken is a serious offense. But there are reasons that people do it. There are bad reasons but they are reasons, okay? So maybe there's a sin in your life that you really, really, really enjoy, but you would enjoy it more if the Bible didn't condemn it. The Bible's got something to say about it, and you don't like that. So maybe you add an affirming interpretation there. You take out a condemning interpretation there. Maybe you find a few guys with PhDs who agree with your choice of sin and lifestyle. You find a few preachers who preach sermons based on the commentaries that the guys with PhDs wrote. If that many people agree with you, it's not even really a sin anymore, is it? That, that's kind of the way this works, right? After all, the Bible's written in a different time to different people. Society's progressed since then. It's evolved. That we're, we're a more noble species now, and those ancient barbarians, would just, they would agree with us if they could have the enlightened state of mind that we have now. Things are okay now that weren't okay then. Don't y'all know that? See, that's the way this works. 2 Timothy 4.3 says, The time's going to come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own what? Desires. According to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. What's a fable? It's made up. It might be a fun story. Occasionally they can have good morals, but they don't have the authority of Scripture. Somebody can dress up a bad moral in a good fable and teach it as though it's true. The Bible says what it says, and it means what it's always meant. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away. Has that happened yet? No, it has not. One jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. God does not affirm the editorial work of men and women who would prefer him to change. Well, Josh, I didn't think we were talking about changing God. Yes, you are. If you change scripture, that's really who you want to change. Because who inspired this? 
God did. God's word is a reflection of who he is. Jesus, according to John 1, is the word of God made flesh. Have you ever thought about that phrase in 1 John? That Jesus is the man you would get if you took this and put it in flesh and bone and sinew and blood. He embodies every bit of inspired scripture in a real human being. He's the human being you would get if this was a person. That's what it means that Jesus is the word made flesh. So if you want to change this, if you want a different word, that means you want a different Jesus. That's what changing the word is. But there is only one Jesus. To want a different Bible is to want a different God. And since there is only one unchangeable, immutable God, there is only one unchangeable, immutable word. It's untenable to change this unless, of course, you're not concerned about the opinion the God of the Bible might have regarding those who change it. People who neither know nor care about him are the only people who can do this. So that's kind of our long introduction to the, the main point of the entirety of this sermon, that there is a dividing line in the sand that you are on one side of or the other. One group takes the word of God at face value. They take it the way it is, and that doesn't mean it's easy for them. That doesn't mean that it's always pleasant. Those of you who know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've been convicted by the Holy Spirit and just revel in how good it feels for him to point your sin out. Does that feel great? No, it does not feel good. But aren't you glad that he does it? What does he use to do it? But it doesn't feel good. But you enjoy the fact that he does it because that means he's chastening you like a father does his child. But the Holy Spirit is not going to convict you of your sin if you decide, mm, I'll just cut this out here. I'll cut that out there. I'll change this. I'll change the interpretation so I can look in my Bible and I can see that God is perfectly happy with my sin. Josh, you mean the Holy Spirit's not going, not going to convict those people? You put your soul in grave danger before God whenever you decide you're going to change His Word. Y'all, Revelation 22, 18, and 19 is not a threat. It's a promise. You add to it, God will add something to you. You take away from it, God will take something away from you. Only saved people Hear the word of God, accept it in totality, and obey it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Only lost people alter it and accept the alterations and ease their consciences thereby. So second point is that nobody who alters God's word belongs to him. Let's go back, loop back around to the beginning of verse 18. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone, what? Adds. To these things 
God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. So let's look at this first sin and this first penalty. The first sin is adding to God's word. The penalty is God adds the plagues of this book to the one who adds. Who in the book of Revelation experiences the plagues of the book of Revelation? What group of people? The lost. The lost do. Let's look at the second sin and penalty. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall what? Take away his part from the book of life. Some of you in New American Standard, ESV, yours does not say book of life. Yours says tree of life. Correct? Some of you are seeing tree of life instead. Now let me tell you um, why this, in terms of interpretation and doctrine, the difference is non-existent. Right? Okay, so access to the holy city in the book of, Le of Revelation belongs only to the redeemed. The tree of life is in the holy city. Only those whose names are in the book of life are allowed access to the holy city. So to be barred from the tree is to not be found in the book. To not be found in the book is to be barred from the tree. The difference is non-existent. It's just a manuscript uh, di uh, discrepancy. Um, some of the older ones have it, but we don't have as many of them. The ones that we have a lot of have the other one. So we don't know which it is. Some translations roll either. Uh, but now you know that it doesn't make a difference whether it's the book or the tree. So the penalty for taking away from God's word is that God takes away the blessings. Now, who doesn't experience the blessings of this book? The lost. So the people who experience the curses in the book are the lost. The people who don't experience the blessings of the book are the lost. Because the witness of Scripture confirms the salvation of the redeemed cannot be lost. And because the penalties for changing the word of God are identical to the penalties for rejecting Christ. We can be Sherlock Holmes and we can deduce from that that adding and subtracting from the word of God are actions undertaken only by those who reject Jesus Christ and have never been redeemed. Such alterations make manifest a lack of saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the choice to add and subtract from his word puts in great danger the soul of one who decides to do that. And Baptists, which we is, okay, we routinely take a lot of flack for hanging on to once saved, always saved, don't we? People look at us and go, how in the world can you possibly think that? Because on a surface level, the objection makes a lot of sense. And when I say surface level, I mean when you just look at the lives of people. Okay? Uh, most of us know somebody, some individual who committed to Christianity early in life. Notice I say they didn't commit to Christ. They committed to Christianity early in life. Maybe they made a decision at vacation Bible school or church camp. They came down an aisle. They cried. They signed a card. They did all the things, right? They did that. And they were in church. They stayed involved in church for a while. But then they grew up. And then life happened. And all of a sudden, this commitment to God and to his people 
is kind of fading off back into the distance in the rear view. Do you know anybody like that? Yeah? This person left, but if you were to go to them and talk to them today and ask them about the fate of their eternal soul, they would tell you, oh, I got nothing to worry about. I was saved back when I was 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 years old. I hadn't darkened the door of a church since then. I hadn't served, I haven't given, hadn't borne any fruit, but once saved, always saved, right? You ever heard that story? Our friends in different denominations would point to this, point to situations like this, and they would use it as prima facie evidence that Christians can either lose or give up their salvation. The technical term is to apostatize or fall away. And apostasy is a real thing, but I would argue that our friends in other denominations misunderstand its nature. I could go to any number of passages in Scripture to make this case, but there is one I believe is the clearest and can clear up all doubt for us just right now. 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest, make shown that none of them were of us. This verse is one of many listed under Article 5 of the Baptist Faith and Message. You remember I told you we as Baptists? Yeah, Baptist Faith and Message, Article 5. It reads like this. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. All true believers endure to the end. Those whom God has accepted in Christ and sanctified by his spirit will never fall away from the state of grace but shall persevere to the end. Believers may fall into sin through neglect and temptation, whereby they grieve the Spirit, impair their graces and comforts, and bring reproach on the cause of Christ and temporal judgments on themselves. Yet they shall be kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. In other words, a Christian can be stupid. My previous pastor, whom I love dearly, Phil, if you ever watch this, I stole this from you. We are all, every single day, one step from stupid. Don't take that step. You remember Looney Tunes with Wile E. Coyote? He always went about one step too far over that cliff. That's where we are on a daily basis. You're one step from stupid, and you can make that step and wreck your life in ways that you would not even imagine. As a Christian, you can do that. But guess what's going to happen after you wreck your life? You're going to turn to God in repentance and you're going to feel garbage about it. And you're going to come back and God's going to pick you up. He's going to dust you off and he's going to say, now there might be some consequences for this. You're going to impair your temporal, uh, you're going to impair your temporal uh, life that you're going to experience some judgments in time that you're going to impair your, your graces and comforts that you're going to feel bad about it. But you're always going to turn back around and go back to Jesus and say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Forgive me. I, I did stupid. 
and he's always going to take you back, and he's always going to pick you up and dust you off, and, and, and we're going to keep going. But what doesn't happen to someone who doesn't know Christ is that they never come to Jesus about it. They don't feel the need to come to Jesus about it. There is such a thing as men and women who leave the church, but we need to clarify what we mean by the words leave and church. There are men and women who physically leave buildings known as churches. Yeah. There are uh, men and women who remove their name from church roles. They call the church and say, take me off. And there are people who leave orthodoxy, right belief in God as revealed by his word in the Bible in order to chase fables and false teachers. There are those people who leave the church. But there are no men and women who are part of the church, the chosen people of God purchased by the blood of Christ who have experienced regeneration of the soul wrought by the Holy Spirit who've experienced justification as they cry out to the Lord Jesus to save them, who experience sanctification as the Holy Spirit changes them, and who eagerly await glorification on the day God remakes them, none of those men and women have ever left the church. That's never happened. Yes, they fall into sin and greed the Spirit. Yes, they worsen their life experience. Yes, they embarrass the church and tarnish Jesus' reputation with their sin. Yes, they experience God's discipline as any child of any father would. But they never leave because the witness of Scripture is that all true believers endure to the end. Look at the penalties outlined for those who change the words in this book. They're the penalties reserved for the lost. Lost people do these things. Lost people add things to Scripture to make themselves feel righteous. Lost people remove, themselves, remove things from Scripture to give themselves a, a, a feeling of a clean conscience. Lost people remake the God of the Bible in their own image so that, that he'll be more, they'll be more in line with their deity of choice themselves. Galatians 1, 6 and 9, Paul says, I marvel that you're turning away from so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. Because, man, there are so many of them, but I thought I gave you the best one. And why would you pick a worse one instead of the one that I gave you? Is that what he says? No. He said, which is not another. There are no other gospels. It is what it is. It means what it means. It says what it says. In no Bible study will I ever ask you, what does this mean to you? Because it doesn't matter what it means to you. It doesn't matter what it means to me. It matters what it means. And if it means something different to you than what the author meant when he wrote it and what the author meant when he inspired it, what it means to you is wrong. I am flat out stunned when I see these people. Y'all, blogs are wild. Do y'all ever read blogs? Let's go into the tech dictionary. Blog is a 21st century word that is a combination of the words web and log. But people who use the internet a lot don't like long words. So, blog. So, blogs are just places where people write. They write what they think. And originally they were personal things. But now blogs are some of the most trafficked websites on the internet. And anybody can have one. 
And you get these really famous theologians, theologians, who discover things in the Bible that nobody's ever seen for 2,000 years. Oh my goodness, did you know I just found this in Scripture. This lifestyle that the church has repudiated for 2,000 years, it actually was okay with the apostles. If you read this word in this light and you compare it to this other text that's not in the Bible and you compare for the differences between their society and ours, truth is you can do whatever. It's like statistics. Did you know that 87.6% of statistics are made up on the spot? Now, there's not another gospel. It is what it is. Scripture is what it is. It means what it's always meant. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we've preached to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you've received, let him be accursed. I find it interesting that all the offshoot religions of Christianity always seem to involve an angel coming to someone like Joseph Smith and telling him, hey, you didn't have the whole message. Let me give you the rest of it. Or telling Muhammad, the book's been corrupted. Let me fix it for you. I don't care if an angel drops down in this room right now and says, let me give you what it's supposed to say. If the Apostle Paul could come back and say, I would like to preach behind this pulpit, we would all probably say, sure. But if he stood up here and said, y'all, I actually had it wrong. This is what we'd, we ought to run him out. That's what the Holy Spirit said to do. I don't care how many PhDs somebody has. I don't care how many people go to that preacher's church. If your conscience is at ease because you bought the lie by some charlatan who chucks out the uncomfortable parts of the Bible so that you can live an easy life and have a clear conscience and have your sin and feel like you can have Jesus too, I pray that your conscience gives you all kinds of trouble tonight. Because only lost people change the Bible so they can enjoy their sin and self-righteousness. It's not something that Christians do. It's just not. Those who alter the Bible do not know the God of the Bible, no matter what they say. But the flip side of that coin is that those who receive and obey God's word are his. That's one of the marks of saving faith. So when you look at verse 18 and you look at verse 19 and it says God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book or God will take away his part from the book slash tree of life. Add to him implies that God's giving him something he wouldn't otherwise have. Take away his part implies that God's removing something from him he would otherwise enjoy. Because changing and ignoring God's word is indicative of the absence of saving faith. 
receiving God's word unchanged and obeying it must be indicative of the presence of saving faith. Just like the hubris to edit the word of God can only be found in those who don't know him through Christ, the fear and reverence to receive it totally can only be found in those who have been redeemed to God through Christ. The second and third points of this sermon are really just two sides of the same coin. Altering the Bible to make it more palatable is not something a Christian does. Christian was actually a term originally used as a pejorative. It was originally an insult. Uh, the, the people who used it first, it was early pagans, it happens in the book of Acts, they used it as an insult because they were saying, you bunch of folks are trying to act like little, ver little miniature versions of Jesus. Y'all trying to be just like him, aren't you? And they intended it as an insult. Clearly it did not stick. Because being told, well, you're just doing your best impersonation of the Christ, aren't you? Well, we're trying. <laughs> we're doing the best we can. It's, it's, it's not an insult. To, to imitate him is to aspirationally embody the text. Of the, remember, Jesus is the what made flesh. So to imitate Christ is to aspirationally embody scripture in our lives as well. To not seek to embody this is to not imitate Christ. If Jesus is for something, a Christian's for it. If Jesus is against something, a Christian's against it. This is the reason that, that us Christians, us evangelical, conservative, Bible-thumping Christians get knocked as being closed-minded. But the opposite is actually true. Right? That we're, we're not actually the closed-minded ones. Uh, the next set of verses are from the Christian Standard Bible, printed by our, our very own boys over at Holman. Um, I, I thought this translation was great. For, for what we're about to look at. Look at Romans 8, 7, and 8. The mindset. Some of your Bibles read the carnal mind. The mindset of the flesh is hostile to God because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it is unable to do so. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The mind of someone who has never come to Christ is unable to reconcile the way he lived his life with the word of God. It's not that he closes his mind to God. The lost person has not closed their mind to God. It's that the lost person is unable to open their mind to him. They cannot choose to just, I'm going to live a godly life. That's what happens when you're spiritually Dead. Look at Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you previously walked according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath, as the others also were. When you are lost, your five physical senses are all that you have. You are spiritually dead. You have a soul, but that soul is dead to the things of God. Any of y'all ever been to a, been to a visitation? Y'all remember back when we could do those? And, and, and you go to the visitation, and it, it, it's a sad scene because you see somebody go up 
and they see that they see their loved one, they see their friend, and they and they they grab their hand one more time. Maybe they fix their hair a little bit, or they say something like, "Oh, oh, she looks so good. Oh, he looks so good." And there was this one time I went to a visitation. I said, "Wow, they really did a good job." And she popped up and she said, "You know what? I wish they'd put me in the green dress instead of the blue one. Um, that I, I I really didn't like the, this choice." of things and, and I don't like the hairstyle that they gave me and and but but at least they buried my favorite jewelry in this box. It's in that little drawer so I can get to it whenever I want. Has, did that actually happen? No, that didn't happen. If you if any of y'all believe it did, bless your heart. <laughs> uh, no, because dead people don't get up. That's that's why it's a ridiculous story. Because at the visitation the person is dead. They do not respond to outward stimuli. When you grab their hand, they won't grab yours. When you, when you adjust their hair, they won't sneeze as you tickle their nose. They won't do that because they're dead. So why is it when we read uh, Ephesians chapter 2 and we read that someone is dead in their sins and trespasses, why is it that we falsely present the gospel to them by saying, if you just do right, if you just live godly, if you just see this, if you just think that, y'all, they're spiritually dead. They cannot process the things of God. Good thing is, God's in the resurrection business. That's how someone is saved. When you are lost... Maybe you can admit that, your act, that the actions the Bible calls sins seem to have the nasty habit of ruining people's lives, but when your five senses want you to engage in them, honestly, what reason do you have not to? You're spiritually dead. You can't perceive the things of God. You can't perceive the spiritual world. All you have is your physical senses telling you this is good. Who says that these sins are going to ruin your life? Maybe you're the exception. Maybe you can be the one to prove that this specific action isn't a sin that inevitably destroys the person who does it. Maybe it's actually a legitimate desire that's actually harmless as long as you don't screw up its execution. That's it. It's not that the action's actually wrong. Everybody else just executes it poorly. You can do it and you'll be all right. You'll be just fine. Because you don't perceive the things of God. Your five senses tell you, this is going to be okay. I desire it. Clearly it's good. It's not going to hurt me. It's never going to harm me. It's not going to ruin my life. Sure, it does to everybody else, but that's just because they're dumb. This fruit sure looks pleasant to the eye. It's desirable for food. And to make one wise, the snake wouldn't lie to me. He's got my best interest at heart. After all, he's a talking snake. That's pretty cool. No point in scripture, animals talk, do good things happen. Never happens. It's not ever good. No, maybe you could just enjoy that sin if Christians would stop thumping their Bibles at you. And what's even worse than that is when you're lost, you actually have encouragement. You're spiritually dead, so you're not going to listen to the word of God telling you to deny your sinful flesh. But I guarantee you, you will listen to the devil telling you to ignore it. 
You'll listen to the devil telling you to gratify your flesh. You're not only walking according to the ways of this world, but guys, this is the scariest thing. When you're spiritually dead, you, you think you're marching to the beat of your own drum, but you're not. I'm a sports fan, which means it's a tough time for me. But sports teams typically wear jerseys so that when they're out on the field or they're on the court or wherever they are, you can identify who they're playing for, who their coach is, who's giving them their game plan and their instructions. What Ephesians 2 tells me is that if you've never come to Christ, you're wearing the devil's jersey. He's giving you your game plan. He is your coach. He is encouraging you. He is spurring you on. He wants you to score points for his team. The Bible says that in your lostness, in your spiritual deadness, you're on his side. You walk according to his ways. He guides you where he wants you to go by appealing to the inclinations of your flesh and the thoughts of your spiritually dead soul. But here's the good news. Romans 8, 9, and 10 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone doesn't have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Now, if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. That spiritual deadness is undone when you come to Christ. The Holy Spirit does a work in you that theologians call regeneration, an event that Jesus called being born again. Let me tell you what happened. That day that you heard the gospel and you said, literally, some of y'all are going to be like, I can't believe he said this behind the pulpit. But it's appropriate whenever you remember the moment you were saved. Someone said you were a sinner and you said, oh my God, they're right. And you spoke to him. Because you recognized that he spoke to you. That was the first real time you did that. Because prior to the moment that the Holy Spirit regenerated you and pumped life into your dead soul so that you could hear the word of God. You would be convicted of your sin. You would respond in saving faith. Prior to that moment, you were spiritually dead. When you said, God have mercy on me, a sinner, who do you think lets you do that? The Spirit did that in you. As a pastor, I have never preached hard enough for somebody to get saved. You know who it is that convicts and draws and pulls people to Jesus? It's the Holy Spirit. Y'all, I can preach the best sermon of my life, but if the Holy Spirit doesn't move on somebody's heart, they're not going to move out of their pew. I can preach hard. I can sweat. I could even get out the, the, the old-timey preacher hanky and wipe my forehead. I got this light up here blasting me in my face. I got a little miniature TV studio. Hello, Internet. It doesn't matter how much I have going on. It doesn't matter how many bells and whistles. When you felt that gospel pull on your heart, that was the Holy Spirit waking you up and saying, it's time. Right now, at this moment, Every single person in this room is enduring a body corrupted by sin. And your body's five senses, because of sin's corruption, don't always lead you toward righteous actions, do they? Your thoughts, your emotions don't always lead you toward righteousness, do they? Your desire to gratify your flesh tempts you toward sin, but when you come to Christ, 
something game-changing happens. All of a sudden now, it's not just your dead soul and your corrupt, sinful body. Life is breathed back into you. And now, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you wars against your flesh on your behalf. And you can say, do you know what? My flesh desires something. But I know by the witness of the Spirit in me, this is not good. And I can, by the power of the Spirit in me, not indulge that. Your flesh might continue to tempt you, but you're no longer powerless against it because the Holy Spirit lives in you, giving life because of Christ's righteousness on your behalf. Ephesians 2.4 says, God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ even though we were dead in trespasses. You are saved by grace. This is why the disciples of Jesus do not alter the word of God because to them, the word is life itself. Why would you change that? The word made flesh, Jesus, the one who breathed life into their dead souls. They love him. If you've been saved, you love this word. That doesn't mean it doesn't hurt you sometimes. The Bible is always comforting. It's rarely comfortable. But you wouldn't change it for anything because you wouldn't change your Lord Jesus who saved you. Nobody who's met him would. Obedience to him might cost you friends. It might cost you family. It might cost you finances. But to the one who's been taken out of death and given life, the cost is all worth it. True disciples of Jesus never change the Bible. The Bible changes them. That's the difference. If you're saved, you know that. If you're saved, you know that. But if you're here today and you're lost, and you say, hmm, there's a lot of the Bible that says some, says some stuff about my life that I don't really like. That's really offensive. Have you ever thought about the fact that maybe it's not the Bible that's offensive to you? Maybe it's you that's offensive to God? I don't mean that as an insult. Every single one of us is offensive to God when we gratify our flesh and we sin. This pastor is offensive to God when he sins. My deacons, Lord, I love them. They're the best deacons in the world. Do you know that y'all are offensive to God when you sin? That's not Ethan. I'm not calling you out specifically. I'm saying you're a human being who's not named Jesus. Therefore, you sin and you offend God. It's not the Bible that's offensive to you. It's you that's offensive to God. But God's made a way that you can have life again and you can learn to obey him again and you can be forgiven by his grace and you can have the guarantee that you will not suffer the penalties and curses in this book and that you will experience his blessings. I want to offer that to you today. But it's not really me who offers it. It's the Holy Spirit. So if you feel that tug, respond to it. I don't make the call on the red phone every morning that says, Holy Spirit, I need about five tugs. I, I, I don't do that. If he's calling you, you better answer because I don't get to tell him when to come calling again. Preaching this is my part. Convicting you in his part. 
responding to him is your part. And this is your opportunity to do that. Joyce is going to lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. We're going to sing The Savior's Waiting. And all you got to do, wave a hand at me, let me know. I'll catch you after church. We'll talk about it because we can't come up and talk right now. I want you to be saved. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. And if you need to come, you come. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.